0: Well, it's great to be here uh, at Four Oaks Kalarn, or as we at Midtown call it, the Big Leagues. This is, <laughs> this is an exciting opportunity. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 11. That's where we're going to be today. It's what we've been going through. Uh, if you're new, a series in Daniel looking at what it looks like to be God's people in a hostile world, God's people in exile. And uh, Daniel 11 is, if you've ever read Daniel, Daniel 11 is a tricky passage. It's a very challenging passage. It's a very long passage. Uh, I was talking to Josh yesterday, and he was like, you got, you know, 40 minutes. I'm like, oh, that's perfect. 35 minutes to read the chapter, 5 minutes to actually explain it. <laughs> That'll be awesome. But I think Daniel 11, it, it is a challenging passage, but I think it's challenging in, a way, in ways that we might not expect I think it's a very powerful passage of Scripture and a very important passage of Scripture. Now, Daniel 10 through 12 essentially forms one unit. It's one vision. It's the final vision of Daniel's life. And in Daniel 10, we meet Daniel. He's 85 years old. He's this grizzled, hardened, you know, man of God. Just imagine him with this, like, Clint Eastwood squint on his face. And he has lived quite a life, And we find him, and he's mourning. He's mourning and fasting. He's been mourning and fasting for about three weeks. And the reason that he is mourning and fasting is because he has heard that the returned exiles from Babylon, the people that he's lived with for over 70 years in exile, many of them who have returned were trying to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And they encountered a lot of hardship. They encountered a lot of opposition, and you read that in Ezra and Nehemiah. And so the return exiles finally get what they've been praying for their whole lives, for God to bring them out of exile. And there's all this hardship, and there's all this opposition, and there's all this pain and disappointment. And they're wondering, where's God in all of this? And Daniel is wondering the same thing as well. And so he's asking and seeking the Lord and wanting to know the future of his people. And so God sends a messenger to him in Daniel 10 to answer, That question, what is the future of the people of God? And he doesn't give him a message of comfort. Instead, it says he gives him a message of great conflict, a vision of war. And you might wonder, as I'm sure Daniel wondered, why do we have Daniel 11? Why do we have this revelation? What is the point of, in our darkest hour, when I'm trying to figure out what's going on with the people trying to rebuild their nation, why are you revealing to us a future of hardship, trials, and opposition? What does Daniel 11 have to do with us? Now, Daniel is 85, like I said, so he's not going to see the fulfillment of this vision. This is for the days ahead. But this prophecy is given to him so that he would know how to encourage and instruct future generations on the world that they're going to inherit. This world of great conflict, this world where the the system of sin and the world is going to attack and try to oppress the people of God. How do we be faithful in that? I love this quote I read in a commentary. It says, If your Christian life moves daily from triumph to triumph, as you effortlessly grow in your knowledge of God and your victory over sin, then you can probably skip this chapter. (laughs) However, if you know what it is to struggle and fail when you attempt to do what God has told you to do, so that you find yourself wondering why you should even bother to try again, then this chapter is designed for you. We're willing to walk through Daniel 11, I think something profound will happen. I think the idea of God's sovereignty will go from this abstract concept in our minds and it'll land on us in a fresh new way and we'll actually get to walk through and feel and see the amazing sovereignty of God. And that's the foundation for our endurance for the days to come. So I think there's three charges for us that we can draw out of this text. I am going to go through it, but I'm, not, I'm going to do sort of a, a highlight reel of this passage, so I can't go into detail on every little thing. But hopefully we can draw out these three commands, these three charges to us as God's people. We need to pray, we need to resist, and we need to obey. Pray, resist, and obey. You guys ready to roll? All right, let's do this. Daniel chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 2. This is the vision given to Daniel. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up against all the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides thee. So I'm just going to read through, explain a little bit, read through, and then we'll draw some implications. That's how we're going to trek through this thing. Basically, this angel goes up to Daniel and tells him that the nation that rules over him right now, Persia, is not going to last forever. In fact, there's going to be three kings, and that's what happens. And then there's a fourth king, this guy named Xerxes. Who's, he's the king uh, ruling in the book of Esther, Esther, whatever you pronounce it. And he is a very powerful king. So Xerxes is going to be this ultimate king. He's going to have this large army. And if you're a king and you have an army and lots of money and you have a big ego, you want to conquer the world. And that's exactly what he tries to do. And he goes after this upstart little kingdom named Greece, And he takes it over. But 150 years later, Greece starts an uprising under this guy named Alexander the Great. And by age 22, Alexander has conquered the Persian Empire. And by age 33, he's conquered most of the known world and has the largest empire in the ancient world. And then he dies. He Actually, I think he dies of a fever. And he's got no kids, and he doesn't have any authority anymore because he's dead. So his kingdom gets split up into four different kingdoms, owned by four of his different generals. So just like that, two civilizations rise and fall. And we've got to appreciate how staggering this must be to Daniel. This is an incredible prediction of the future, but it is spot on. And the rest of uh, the section basically goes into the conflict between two of Alexander's generals. And here they're symbolically called the king of the south, And the king of the north. And they're going to butt heads all throughout history. And there's all kinds of chaos that comes out of that. So in verse 5, we see that one of his generals, the king of the south, shall be strong. The king of the south, that's Egypt. And the guy who rules is a guy named Ptolemy. And uh, one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule. And his authority shall be a great authority. And after some years, they shall make an alliance and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up and her attendants, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. So two of Alexander's generals, one in the south, one in the north, they start fighting. Generations after that, one of their their sons keep fighting, so there's this conflict between them. And something interesting happens. The king of the south goes to the king of the north. The king of the south is Ptolemy II now. I don't know if I... We don't have to keep track of the names, just keep track of kind of the, the narrative of what's going on. The king of the south goes to the king of the north, and he gives his daughter, this woman named Berenice, to the king of the north for an alliance. And in his mind, he goes, well, you know, you can marry my daughter, and maybe we can have peace. The king of the north likes that because then if they have an heir, their kid's going to have two royal bloodlines and that's good politically for him. There's a problem though. The king of the north is already married and his wife doesn't like this plan. So she actually poisons the daughter that's given away and the king of the north and they both die. And that's exactly what this angel predicts. She'll be given up, her attendants, he who fathered her, and uh, the king himself shall not endure. So the Bible's got some juicy drama. This is some fun stuff. Then in verse 7, And from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. So Berenice—that's the daughter that was given away to the king of the north—who gets poisoned. She's got a brother who's really mad that that happens. So he, that brother actually takes over the kingdom of the south, Egypt, and his name is Ptolemy III. Very creative name. And uh, he goes north to Syria, and he takes revenge, and he beats Syria. So the king of the south beats the king of the north, and he plunders his kingdom. Well, a couple of generations later, in verse 10, it says, His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north, And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And When the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. And in those times many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand against him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hands. So the war continues. Egypt beats Syria. A couple generations later, Syria beefs up their army. They go to Egypt, and they beat Egypt. So Egypt goes to Syria, steals all their stuff. Syria comes back and just takes it all back again. This back and forth keeps happening, and you see these kings amassing massive armies. And at the very end of this passage, we see that the king of the north stands in the glorious land. He stands in Israel. So Israel's caught up in the machinery of all of this. They're this tiny little kingdom, and all these warlords are battling over them, and they're just in the middle. Verse 17, He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom. This is talking about the king of the north. He shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. So the king of the north, basically what happens, this is Antiochus 3. He's from the north. He marches into Egypt. He goes to the king of the south, the king of Egypt, and he makes an agreement. And he says, I'll give you my daughter, Cleopatra. This is not the famous Cleopatra. This is a different Cleopatra. And if I'll give her to you as your queen, and maybe we can have an alliance, maybe we can work together. So this is kind of a recurring theme. Unfortunately, Cleopatra sides with the king of the south. He, she sides with Egypt. She sides with her new husband and betrays her father. And so her father, the king of the north, is pretty angry about that. So in verse 18, we see afterward, when he gets betrayed by his own daughter, he shall turn his face to the coastland and shall capture many of them. But a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall, and shall not be found. And then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. So Antiochus three, the king of the north, he gets mad. And so to kind of calm himself down, he just goes and conquers a bunch of coastland nations. But he's stopped by a commander, a guy named Scipio Asiaticus. And he is a commander of this upstart little empire called Rome. And he whoops him. He defeats him. And Antiochus III is beaten by this Roman general. And now he's forced to pay a Roman tax. So Antiochus III, this mighty king with this great army, has to go back home, and he actually robs his own temple to try to pay back Rome because he owes them a tax. And an angry mob forms and kills him, and he's dead. Are you overwhelmed? <laughs> well, you should be. Because it makes you really realize how small and insignificant and out of control you really are. Your entire life could fit into the first two sentences of this chapter. Here and gone. I think Daniel 11 is meant to crush us. I think it's meant to remove any illusion of self-sufficiency and control that we have. What does this have to do with prayer? I think it has everything to do with prayer. The sovereignty of God is the fertile soil of prayer. And I think the greatest enemy of prayer is not war, pain, suffering, or even despair. The enemy of prayer is self-sufficiency. John Piper says, Unless we know that life is war, we will not know what prayer is for. And he calls prayer a wartime walkie-talkie. I think many of our prayers are ineffective because we don't recognize that we are in a war. And really, prophecy, I mean, this vision is given to Daniel because God is saying, listen, Daniel, this is the future. It's hard, full of trials and tribulations. So you need to pray accordingly. Your, your prayers need to be prayers informed by the story that God is actually telling writing. Prophecy informs our prayers and directs them. Now, if you imagine a guy in a trench, in a battlefield, and there's bullets whizzing by him, he's going to scream different things into a walkie-talkie than a guy in a trench who thinks he's on a cruise somewhere. He's going to ask for reinforcements. He's going to ask for ammunition. He's going to ask for help but the guy who thinks he's on a cruise, even though he's in a war zone, is probably not going to ask for anything. Or he might just spend the whole time wondering why people are shooting at him. We need to have a context for our prayers. We have to act. Yeah, I love what when, when Peter says in 1 Peter. He says, when trials come, don't act like something strange is happening to you. So we shouldn't pray saying, Lord... Lord, let there be no opposition against Four Oaks. Lord, I don't want any trials. Lord, would you change my marriage, but do it in such a way where I don't have, it doesn't have to cost me anything. Lord, I want to see you move in my life, but please don't rearrange the furniture. Please don't, please don't move anything. Just kind of do it in a safe way. Well, if we pray like that, we're praying in a way that doesn't recognize the story that we're in. And we have to let go of the notion that God is only working when things are working out. Prayer only means something when we recognize we are in a war. We also recognize, you know, Daniel 10, one of the, the angels says something strange to Daniel. He says, I heard your prayer. But I was delayed because I was fighting for three weeks against the prince of Persia. Which is a very strange answer to why some of your prayers are delayed. But this angel is saying, I was fighting the spiritual war. And there's a spiritual element to what we are engaged in. There are territorial spirits over nations. There are angels fighting on our behalf. There's a whole world that we can't see. And our prayers are engaged with that. That's why Paul says, put on your spiritual armor. We don't fight against flesh and blood. We fight against powers and principalities. We fight against cosmic powers of darkness. And if we neglect prayer, we're neglecting a whole battlefront. So we can say things like abortion are demonic. We can say that sex trafficking is demonic. And if you think I'm some crazy televangelist by saying that, I'll just quote the usual suspects and say, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. There's a spiritual reality, there's a wartime mentality that has to inform our prayers. And in light of the reality of that war, what are we praying for? Do we pray for grace to endure trials? Do we pray for unity in the church to face opposition? Do we pray for conviction? The conviction to even die or to lose favor with people for the sake of the gospel? And I think these are prayers that God loves to answer, but unless we get the right mindset, we will not pray effectively. All right, let's jump into chapter 21. I'm sorry, verse 21. And verse 21 introduces a really bad dude, this guy named Antiochus IV, And he is, I mean, he's, he's a trip. He's, he's pretty crazy. Verse 21, In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully And he shall become strong with the small people. And without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army. But he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged, and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Antiochus 4, he's the king of the north, king of Syria. He basically assumes the throne through bribery and flattery. He makes people feel good. His full name is Antiochus Epiphanes, which means God manifests. So he's got a huge ego, just like most of these kings do. He's got a big army. He's conquering a bunch of stuff. And uh, he fights the king of the south. And he wins a bunch of major victories. And then he goes home to Syria, to his empire. And the Jews the Israelites that are under his rule stage an uprising because they heard a rumor that he was dead. And so they go, well, this would be a great time for us to, you know, stage a rebellion. He comes back, finds this rebellion happening, and he is really angry. So Antiochus IV slaughters 80,000 men, women, and children. And it gets worse. In verse 31, it says, forces from him, Antiochus, shall appear... And profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand. Though for some days they shall stumble by sword and famine, by and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. So he is a classic tyrant. And notice, he attacks the people of God in two ways. first way is he flatters them. And the second way is he persecutes them. He kills them. It's interesting that the people that he flattered, I mean, you've got to think about this. He goes into the temple, he rips away the burnt offering, and he puts up a statue of Zeus, an idol, in the middle of the temple. This is incredible blasphemy. This is just the most despicable thing you could do. And yet, Israelites are turning a blind eye to it. They don't care. They don't do anything. They're just fine with it. How... Did he do that? It says that he seduced them with flattery. There was a seduction involved. People often talk about how faithful Daniel was in suffering and and persecution, and that's true. I think it's amazing how faithful he was in prosperity. He was given all the accolades. He was the great interpreter of dreams. He had a high ranking in the Babylonian Empire. He never gave up on his convictions. He never compromised. And here's why. He knew... Babylon was going to last forever. He knew Persia wouldn't last forever. He knew every kingdom wouldn't last forever until the everlasting kingdom of God would come. So what is the point of being exalted by temporary kings? He would never trade the eternal kingdom for a temporary one. And the tough thing about these persecution passages is because, you know, I mean, one of the wonderful things about living in America is I don't think we have to face this kind of persecution. It's one of the great freedoms that we have. But there are pressures and there are flatteries that can detract us from convictions. I'll give you an example. I can say racism is blasphemy against God. Homosexual marriage is blasphemy against God. Okay, now both of those are affirmed by the Bible. Both of them are sin. But when I said one of them, I probably there was probably a hearty amen. And the other one, you might have felt a little, you might have winced a little bit. And even when I was writing that, I felt that tension. Because I know, if I'm a Christian and I say, racism is sin, it's blasphemy against God, the world will pat me on the back. They'll flatter me. They're not going to have any problem with that. I'm going to look like one of those Christians that they like. But if I say that homosexuality is blasphemy against God, I'm not going to get the same response. Why is that? Why do we feel that tension? Because it's very easy to let the culture dictate our convictions. More than anything, we have to be consistent in our convictions. And by the way, maybe 70 years ago, the reaction would have been flipped. Maybe no one would have opposed the idea of homosexual, or everyone would oppose the idea of homosexual marriage, but to call out the sin of racism would have been something blasphemous, something that would cause a fight. But we can't have culture. We can't live and die by the culture's approval. And we're not beyond seduction. That we can let even the worst sins become normalized because the culture has normalized them. And this will cost us. I May mean, it cost the Israelites that were rebelling against Antiochus. It says that they were imprisoned, they were killed, they were plundered, they lost all their money, they lost all their social standing, but I love how they're described. They were the people who know their God. Anyone can say they know Jesus, they loved, anyone can muster up the emotion, anyone can say the right things, but the people who know their God stand firm and take action. But there are, there's hope. There's hope. There's hope. Why does this suffering happen to God's faithful people? It says in verse 35, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end. That's a great reassurement. I mean, count your trials a joy. Not because suffering or pain is fun, but you've got to love the idea of the process of God refining you, of God molding you through your suffering. And so you got to imagine these people, they're going, look, the worst you can do to us is be God's instrument to purify us. The worst you can do to us is to create in us the kind of godly character that God wants to create. And so when we face opposition, when you face opposition at your workplace, in your family, with prodigals, any of the heartbreaking things that come in your life, you don't have to love the pain. But you can rejoice in the process. This is God working. This is God moving. And I love how he has absolute sovereign control over the length of the trial. He says, you're only going to suffer until the time of the end. There's an appointed time for your trial to end. And it won't end a day sooner or a day later than God has ordained. Oftentimes, it seems to be a lot later than we would like it to last but we can trust the character of God. God has handcrafted, has perfectly calibrated every trial, every persecution, every disappointment for your eternal good to mold in you a specific kind of character, to mold in you a specific kind of hope. God is not careless with his people and Antiochus 4 does die and the suffering does end and compromise may bring temporary comfort but it leads to judgment leads to destruction but conviction will bring suffering but ultimately leads to glory and that's the story of God suffering then glory death then resurrection God has fine tuned our trials it gets crazier. This next section is tricky because uh, people kind of debate over whether we're still talking about Antiochus IV or we're talking about a future leader. Some people think uh, it's talking about Herod the Great. Uh, you know, I think some of the reformers thought it was the Pope. We won't go there. I think this next section is, is kind of doing both. I think it's talking about Antiochus IV, but he's also foreshadowing a future ruler the Antichrist, a future world leader. And, and the way the Bible works often is it uses what's called types. So King David is a type of Christ. King David uh, represents a righteous king, but he's not perfect, he's not the point. But, but he points towards a future greater perfect king in Christ. And in the same way, all these bad kings are shadows of eventually at the end of history a future king who will be more wicked more evil and more powerful than all those other kings. So I think what's happening here is we have an overlap. We're going to talk about Antiochus, but we're also foreshadowing what this future king is going to be like. And here's what we learn. Verse 36. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, And shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. And he shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other God, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver With precious stones and costly gifts, and he shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him he shall load with honor, he shall make them rulers over many, and shall divide the land for a price. And at the time of the end, so this is a an indicator that when now we're fast forwarding to the future, to the end times, the King of the South shall attack him the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and silver and all the precious things of Egypt." And the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him. And he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. When you get to the end of Daniel 10, you're just longing for a good king. You're just tired of all the war the betrayals, the poisoning, the killing, the slaughtering. But this is the world that we live in. I don't know, maybe some of you work in politics and you're like, this is my life. It's all true. And it is true. The Bible is unapologetic about what a fallen world ruled by fallen men looks like. And I think the angel wants Daniel to desire the kingdom. I think he wants him to feel just wiped out by everything that's coming for the people of God. In these final verses, we're shown two paths that claim to lead to glory. There's God's path to glory, and there's man's path to glory. Now, God's path to glory looks like death, but ends in glory. Man's path to glory looks like glory, but ends in death. And the Antichrist is the pinnacle of that. That's why Jesus says to his disciples, If you want to keep your life, you're going to lose it. If you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. It's completely against everything the world will tell you about life and the meaning of life. And, And really, I think if you could summarize the book of Daniel in one phrase, it would be this God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now the Antichrist does whatever he wants. He says he exalts himself above God. He speaks incredible blasphemies against God and he prospers. He prospers. He gets what he wants. Christ doesn't do what he wants. He does what the Father wants. He doesn't exalt himself above God. What does he do? He humbles himself He doesn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he takes the form of a slave. He honors God, and he suffers. That's the way of God compared to the way of the Antichrist. The Antichrist, it says he rejects the gods of his fathers. He doesn't even reject Christianity. He rejects all all kinds of gods. He rejects any transcendent power over himself. He is the authority. But he does worship the God of fortresses, which is symbolic for the God of, of military might. And there's kind of a play on words. It says that he worships the God of fortresses with gold and silver. And, and it's basically like he's, he worships his military strength and he, he gives offerings of his money to keep it intact and to build his power. But Christ wasn't like that. Christ was faithful to God. He submitted his own authority to the Father's authority. He counted others more significant than himself. He didn't make himself more significant than others. And he trusted God, not human armies. These are the two paths that claim to lead to glory. But only one of them actually does. And we see that. Because the Antichrist, he gains all this power. He has all these armies. He's conquering all these nations. Everyone falls before him. He's, He's far greater than any king that we've talked about. But look at how chapter 11 ends. He pitches his palatial tents. He gathers armies between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. I think that's uh, Israel, the holy mountain in Israel. So he wants to stage an attack against the people of God. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Gone. Defeated. And uh, we actually know how that happens. In Second Thessalonians 2.8, it says, The lawless one will be revealed, that's the Antichrist, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. It's amazing. This mighty king slaughters all these people, all this power, and the Lord Jesus shows up and blows on him and he dies. Breath of his mouth. All this build up for this king... He's gone, just like that. Death is the great equalizer for all men. Doesn't no matter how rich you are, doesn't no matter how poor you are. Everybody will face death, and that levels the field. What does that mean for us? That means we imitate the path of God to glory. We imitate Christ. Right? We carry our cross like He carried His cross in the everyday moments of our lives but there's a very specific obedience that i think we need to focus on in verse 39 it says the antichrist he gains all this authority on earth and all those who honor him all those people he says i want you to go to the nations and you can divvy them up and conquer them and they'll be yours and i'll let you rule over those nations all authority is given to me go to the nations and conquer them what does christ say All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now you go to the nations, not to conquer, but to what? To baptize the nations in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this is what is unique about our king. He's not a king that kills his enemies, he's a king who turns his enemies. Into sons and daughters of God. Those are our marching orders. You go into the world, a world that is exhausted, living under horrible, evil kings, and you tell them, I know a king who will put everything right. I know a king who tells his servants, when all the other kings tell their servants, follow me and do what I say, conquer. Search yourself. Get what's yours. Here's what my servants do. And he pulls out a bucket and a towel and he says, we wash each other's feet. That's what my kingdom is like. And that's what we do. And that's what happened to us, right? We were all enemies of God. And while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. And by the way, does anybody know who Ptolemy is? Seleucus? Antiochus, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing those names right. But we know Daniel. Anyone know the Roman emperors? Well, we know Christ. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. And I think that's so encouraging. We don't have to worry about changing the world. We're not that important. We don't have to be that important. We don't have to hope that our names will be written in the book of history. We rejoice that our names are written in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life. That is our great hope. Pray, resist, obey, and trust God who is sovereign over everything. And I'll end with this, and I I love this. In the middle of all these rising and falling empires, all these armies clashing right under the nose of the mighty Roman Empire, In a backwater podunk town called Bethlehem. A little baby boy cries in a dusty manger in the arms of a scared teenage girl and her wide-eyed fiancé. And in the most unlikely of places, in the most unexpected of ways, a great king is born. The God of history enters into history. I think that's amazing. Or as C.S. Lewis put it, once in our world, a stable had something in it that was bigger than our whole world. But that's a story for another time. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. And to him be glory forever. Amen. Amen.